If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. <laughs> Romans as being just like us wearing togas, but I think if we went back to the ancient world, we would be shocked at the level of daily brutality that could exist. That was Jerry Toner talking about the treatment of slaves in the Roman era. See a man who has got plenty of reason to take a gun out and shoot. He is dirt poor. He is a citizen of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Does he have any rights? Almost none. And that was Tim Butcher, author of a new biography of Gavrilo Princip. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. We're available in all good news agents or you can take out a subscription from anywhere in the world. Visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe for the latest subscription offers. We're also available digitally for the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. For details of our digital formats, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. This year, we are, of course, marking the centenary of the First World War. And already a slew of books and programmes have come out exploring a range of topics about the conflict. One man whose story hasn't really figured too much yet, though, is Gavrilo Princip, the man who killed Franz Ferdinand and set in chain the events that led to the outbreak of war. Hopefully, that is now about to change, thanks to The Trigger, a new book by Tim Butcher which describes the life of Gavrilo Princip and considers what motivated him to become an assassin. Tim himself is a former war correspondent who spent time in Bosnia during the conflict there in the 1990s. He came into our studio a few days ago to talk about his book, and I began by asking him what first drew him to the story of Princip. Mainly the, uh, the way it's been mangled. You know, so many people get so many things wrong. Back in the day, in 1914, it was misrepresented. In the 1930s, historians got it wrong. They were sort of part of it. Historians still get it wrong, broadcasters, newspapers. The fact that there's so much about him is, is clearly and self-evidently incorrect. I wanted to go back to try and find out 
what the actual historical evidence is, not what the myth is, not what the political claims are, not what the misrepresentation is, but you know, what is the truth. So much has been got wrong about this incredible man who has such his history bestows on him such importance because it is his act that triggers the First World War, and yet his story has been mangled. So what do you think are like the key things that people have got wrong about him? Well, small, trivial things. Small things like, you know, the photograph that appears in, on the BBC website, on the cover of the Cambridge University press book on the First World War is not him. A man being arrested, it's a man called Ferdinand Bear. And that's quite a you know, small thing, just a photograph wrong. But it speaks to the, uh, to the greater truth, which is that people don't bother to get it right. The most important thing about him is that at the very beginning of this narrative, after the assassination, he is presented as, some, as something he is not. He is presented as a Serbian it might sound odd and a slightly subtle because he is a Serb. Hold on, it's a, you know, how do we compute that? But he is a Bosnian Serb. It's the difference between, between being someone from Northern Ireland and from Ireland. And you'd get thumped on the nose to, for saying the wrong thing, getting it wrong in Ulster. Similarly there. The Viennese authorities wanted to paint him as an agent of Serbia in, under the control of Serbia. Indeed, Serbian from that country in order to justify their attack on July the 29th, the first domino, the first military domino to fall in the sequence that leads to the First World War. And yet, it's not true. First of all, he's not Serbian. He's from Austria-Hungary in the same way that Adolf Hitler is from Austria-Hungary. The same passport, the same Reise Pass, the same ability to move around as Adolf Hitler had and millions of others in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. He's not Serbian. Was he controlled by Serbia? No. No evidence of that whatsoever. The closest we come to evidence is testimony in court in 1917 from a man, a Serbian nationalist, a Serbian extremist, a man known as Colonel Apis, who is about, who's fighting for his life. He's facing a death sentence for treason because he is regarded as so extreme the Serbian government want nothing to do with him. And he says, hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, I was in control of the uh, attentat, the assassination of 1914. Well, those are the words of a desperate man. There's no other ev evidence beyond that. And this is what's so intriguing. Some have accepted the testimony of a desperate man who was so far away from the Serbian government that they executed him as proof that his young agent... Gavrilo Princip was close to the Serbian government. It's self-evidently nonsense. And that's what's so intriguing. And it's, it's been accepted by many historians. And it sort of entered into the narrative. But in a way, that's why Gavrilo Princip is so intriguing. That you can shape him into whatever scapegoat you want. It's almost a terrible lesson in that banal observation from Napoleon when he says that history is nothing but the lies that are no longer disputed. And in the case of Gavrilo Princip, plenty of lies. So if you don't believe that Serbia were really behind his actions in Sarajevo, where was that coming from? Was it just a personal motivation that he wanted to kill Franz Ferdinand? Go to his homeland. Take the filter away of modern history. Try and understand. This is the premise of my research that has led to the book that I've written, The Trigger. And you see a man who has got plenty of reason to take a gun out and shoot. He is dirt poor. He is a citizen of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Does he have any rights? Almost none. On the if you can be bothered to go and look, the police charge sheet on the day when he is picked up in 1914, it has name, Gavrilo Princip, father's name, Petar, mother's name, Maria, home village, but where are you from, Grahovo, date of birth. And on that first page, it says this in black and white. This so structured is the Austro-Hungarian machine. To whom does this serf belong? He's a serf. 
He's a feudally exploited, angry young man. Six of his siblings have died in childhood because his parents live in such poverty, such dire poverty. He has all the reason in the world to take a gun out and hurt someone who represents that. Now, he could have been more moderate. They could have sat down and negotiated in the course of 40 years since the great revolutionary texts of Marx and things have been, Engels have been around in the late 19th century. There were certainly moderate voices. But there were also plenty of young men and young women who decided to take direct action, what you might call the Nelson Mandela moment. Nelson Mandela, ANC, peaceful, no protest, finally they're going to use a gun. Similarly, this man does this. But was he alone? No. There was a guy just a few years ahead of him in Sarajevo, one of the people in his group, a man called Bogdan Jirajic, totally forgotten by history, who pulls out a gun, tries to assassinate an, an Austro-Hungarian. Why? Because they're desperate. They're cornered, got no option. The, the vote is a million years away. It's an unthinkable right. They're feudally exploited, all of their money that's made by their poor parents, go to the state, live in wretched conditions. So that's where his anger comes from. So he doesn't need to be pushed over the edge by a neighboring state of Serbia. There's plenty of casus belli for him. Do we have any idea of what he was hoping might happen after the assassination? Did he have a plan for what might happen? He was naive. Um, I, the, the book I've written is not one to praise Governor Principe, but simply to understand him. Um, I wouldn't call him a terrorist, because in my modern vernacular, terrorist means someone who deliberately kills civilians, Osama bin Laden provisional IRA planting bombs in memorial services. That's a terrorist act, blowing up a pizza house in Tel Aviv. That's an act of terror. He's an assassin. So I would regard him, you know, be slightly careful in how you, in how you regard him. Simply, a naive man, he wanted out. He wanted to get rid of these colonial occupiers. What comes later is almost irrelevant. At the court hearing and in various other observations when he's he's talking to a psychoanalyst and he's, he's talking confidentially. He, don't, he doesn't know that this stuff is going to come out. The psychoanalyst only publishes it many years later. He says that we want to get rid of the Austro-Hungarians. Who are the we? Who's the we? Are you, are you speaking just as an ethnic Serb? And this is the crucial thing to understand. He was not working as an ethnic Serb. He was working as a Slav. All of the Slavs in that area. He was a Slav nationalist. To be specific, a South Slav nationalist, because they're known as the Southern Slavs, the people who live in this area, to distinguish them from the Northern Slavs. He was a Slav nationalist who drank with Croats, the Catholics, who uh, plotted with Bosnian Muslims. The very fact there were Bosnian Muslims and Bosnian Croats in the assassination of 1914 was conveniently and discreetly airbrushed out by the Viennese authorities. One of the assassins on the day, there were six assassins lined up to have a go at the Archduke, and it fell to Gavrilo Princip to actually be the one. One of them was a Muslim. That's ignored. The, the Two of the people who were picked up afterwards who were involved in getting rid of the weapons were Croats, were Catholics. They were non-Serbs. So it didn't fit the narrative of Vienna. They wanted to paint it purely as a Serb-Serbian thing, Serbian thing, elided Serb and Serbian. So they were discreetly moved away. But throughout, Gavrilo Princip wanted to get rid of Austro-Hungarian leadership. What comes later? Debatable. Different. He wasn't a socialist. He was more of a nationalist for the cause of us all working together. Some sort of federalism? I don't know. He was naive. He hadn't thought that through. And in a way, like a sorcerer's apprentice, he started something he couldn't control. But he was definitely not a Serbian agent. And he was definitely interested in getting rid of Austro-Hungary as a colonial power, taking a symbolic act, killing a leader, and hoping that in some way might ferment change. 
He, of course, had no idea that the dominoes would fall in the way that they did, that suddenly there would be a huge conflagration in Belgium, in northern France. How insane is that? In Gallipoli, in the eastern front, it was all beyond his ken. But you can't hold him responsible for strategic decisions taken by chancellors and generals and plenipotentiaries. He wanted Austria-Hungary to go. There was no vote. There were no rights. And he took a desperate act. But he comes in a place where assassination was relatively common. The Serbian king had been assassinated not many years before. As Yugoslav prime minister was going to be, or another king was going to be, another assassination in a few years later. Assassination was part of the political process. It might sound brutal, but that's a reality. Capolo Princip, he lived, as far as I'm aware, in prison until almost the end of the war. Do we know whether what his thoughts were about what did happen as a result of his act? Did he ever speak about it? He kills the Archduke. Clearly, there were many in the Viennese authorities and indeed the wider community, including someone like Winston Churchill, who regarded him as an absolute villain, who'd like him to have been executed. The problem was the Austro-Hungarian society was a very uh, legalese one, and there was a criminal code. In order to have a capital uh, sentence to be executed, you had to be 20 on the day of the crime. Carrillo Princip was 19 years, 11 months and a few days, 16 days. So just just a couple of days under the under the thing. So they couldn't execute him. They gave him a strange sentence, 20 years for murder and high treason. And the 20-year sentence was slightly qualified. One day a month, he was to be starved. And on the anniversary of the assassination, the 28th of June, he was to have the lights turned out. He was to be starved and have no light. So very strange. But the point was, this was a man who was a very social animal, very bookish, discussing ideas with all of these other young thinkers and young activists who got radicalized in his community. He was literally rotting from, his, his soul was rotting from within to have been left alone in solitary confinement. They stuck him in jail. He lasts until April of 1918, when he dies of tuberculosis, a skeletal form, so his bones were rotting within his family. They actually ended up amputating his, his arm. We know about his, his mindset because a psychoanalyst, an amazing early Viennese physician called Martin Pappenheim, visits him several times in prison. And you hear the wailings of a person who is uh, wretched at having no communication, wretched at having nothing to read, wretched at not being able to ferment ideas or discuss things, and absolutely tortured by the fragments of information he's getting about a war that has been triggered. As we said earlier, he started a sequence of dominoes that no one could have predicted. And only with hindsight do we, you know, historically do we look back and say, oh, there's a chain of causal connection here. You couldn't have predicted that this was going to spool out in the way it did. This tiny little assassination on the corner of a street in Sarajevo was going to be whipped up by some strange multiplier into this strategic thing. He was upset for the reason that Austria-Hungary was still in power. They were still around. He wanted them out. Um, he was devastated. He was consistently apologetic that he had killed the wife of the Archduke. It was an accident. He was not aiming at her with his second shot. The first shot was aimed at the Archduke. The second shot was aimed at Oskar Pachorak, the Bosnian uh, colonial commander, go colonial governor. But his arm was knocked in the mayhem, and it, his arm went down, the bullet went through the side of the car and into the abdomen of Sophie, the, the wife, and she dies. He was consistently apologetic about that. So he was wretched on that account, wretched of the fact that Austria-Hungary was still there. But when he dies... They find scratched on the wall that uh, our ghosts will haunt the halls of the Lord. So he's sort of even leaving graffiti behind that he thinks that we will have done something that will somehow haunt the elite, the Austro-Hungarian elite. He couldn't see it. He couldn't see it actually happening at the time. And he couldn't foresee it. But guess what? You know, He did something which would end up with the Austro-Hungarian Empire being rolled up. So in a way, it was turbulent and violent and chaotic. But 
Yugoslavia eventually, after a transitional period, when it wasn't Yugoslavia, it was something else, after 1918, Yugoslavia, a country for all Slavs in that area, was formed. So he did get, ultimately, posthumously, what he wanted. And you've done some reporting yourself in, in the same kind of area as Gavrilo Princip was from. Did that inform your writing of this book at all? What you mean is I was cover- I covered, I reported there, not in, in modern times, but in 20 years ago, in yeah, the 1990s. Right. I was drawn there as a foreign correspondent to cover an amazing war which had broken out at the end of communism. The decline of communism was relatively peaceful in Europe until Yugoslavia falls to pieces. And we have a war in Slovenia that lasts a few days, a horrible war in Croatia that lasts a very long time, and the worst of all, the Bosnian War that runs for three years, 92 to 95, 110,000 people dead in Western Europe, similar numbers to Syria today, which has been going on for three years, and a city like Sarajevo being shelled, just like Aleppo is today. So there's a strange sort of historical echo. How did it inform me? It informed me because it showed me about the toxicity of nationalism. That war in the 90s was because there was no colonial power. There was no Austria-Hungary to vent against or Ottoman authorities, or indeed a communist dictator. There was just the issue of control, and how do you control? And sadly, the Sorcerer's Apprentice analogy, Gavrilo Princip started something to do with nationalism. He took an act out of national interest, self-determination, you know, a very vogueish concept at the beginning of the 20th century, Woodrow Wilson, the Wilson points at the end of the First World War, self-determination. But there's a terrible reductionism to nationalism, isn't there? To define myself as X, I'm defining people who are not X, they are Y, and that's automatically a a hostile thing. So potentially it can be turned to a hostile fault line. And the tragedy from my point of view is that I only saw the country in the 1990s when the fault lines had been made charged and had been made hostile, when a war driven by extremists, not the majority, a minority, Slobodan Milosevic, Rakum Mladic, Radovan Karadzic, unleashing thugs, extremists, literally criminals. The prisons were emptied and the criminals were given guns. You know, football hooligans from the rough end of the terraces given a gun, given a uniform. You can go and kill people. Just go and do it. Help yourself. Steal the telly. Steal the car. Help yourself. No, we'll look away. The, the era of the warlords, the Game of Thrones warlords. Disgusting. In Europe, in our era, Srebrenica. I saw how toxic nationalism can become. I would, I'm very f- happy to criticize Gavrilo Princip for starting something that ends in that. But you can't directly hold him responsible for it because he was a dreamer about all these people living together, not fighting. And you've, you've gone back to Bosnia to do some research on this book. I have gone back to Bosnia. I've gone back because he does a journey to get to the street corner in Sarajevo. And I th- am thrilled by the process of a journey. It, it brings a story alive for me. And that's what I've done before in previous books. Like journeys unravel. And on this journey, you can feel not just the sense of Gavrilo Princip, you can find graffiti left on a wall by him. Very exciting to physically touch something that he, he did, which no one's picked up before. To find his school reports. No historian has bothered to, to look at them in a hundred years. And the school reports are important for a 19-year-old assassin because those cover you know, his formative years from the age of 12 to 19 in school. And you see him getting starting out as an excellent student and then falling. You think, why have, you know, again, it's because historians have just ignored, largely ignored this figure. He just ghosts half-formed into their narratives. Go back. You can put flesh on these bones. You can tell us. You, you, you can see the type of young man he is. And by going back and doing that research, for me, it's utterly, it's absolutely key. Um, it fills out my understanding of Gavrilo Princip in terms of context, where he was from in 1914. And it strips away, seeks to strip away 
the filter of the toxic ethnic nationalism of the 1990s. And only by doing that, I think, can you get a fair idea of what he was and what he was about, what, what this young man was about who changed all our lives. That was Jerry Toner. Jerry's new book, How to Manage Your Slaves, is to be published on the 5th of June by Profile Books. You can read more from Jerry and Matt in the June issue of BBC History magazine, which has just gone on sale. Also this month, James Holland will be asking whether D-Day was a tragedy or a triumph. Derek Wilson will explore a Tudor murder mystery. Admiral Lord West will be revealing the Royal Navy's impact on the 20th century. And we'll be kicking off a new series of oral histories of the First World War. You can get hold of our June issue in all good news agents and digitally for the Kindle, Kindle Fire, iPad, iPhone, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now it's time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarnan. A British First World War soldier married a nurse who had condemned him to death, it has been revealed. Captain Harry Oldham from the West Yorkshire Regiment was gravely wounded during the Third Battle of Ypres in 1917 and found himself on an operating table in a York military hospital, muttering in German. An Irish nurse, Heather Orloff, mistook him for a German spy and said that he should not be allowed to live. Yet two years later, the pair married and went on to have three children. The story was uncovered in the University of Leeds archives by five undergraduates researching the things that soldiers at the front missed about home. The students unearthed accounts written by Oldham in 1969, more than half a century after meeting his future wife. In other news, Alfred the Great, the rise of Islam and early Anglo-Saxons are to feature in a draft new History A-level due to be introduced next year. The aim of the course, from exam board OCR, is to give greater breadth to the subject, which has been criticised for having a 20th century Western focus. Altogether, there will be 58 topics divided into three groups, world history, British history and historical themes. Sixth formers will be asked to choose three topics, one from each group. Topics include China and its rulers, 1839 to 1989, African kingdoms from 1400 to 1800, and the ascendancy of the Ottoman Empire. What do you think of the new syllabus? Share your views by tweeting at History Extra or posting on our Facebook page. Meanwhile, hundreds of examples of Second World War art drawn by US bomber crews at air bases in the east of England are to be documented in a new project. Eighth in the East aims to preserve the cartoons, murals and graffiti painted by the crews between 1942 and 1945. The 575,000 Heritage Lottery-funded project also wants to look at the legacy the US 8th Army Air Force left for the East, BBC News reports. The study is looking at airfields spread across Norfolk, Suffolk, Essex, Hertfordshire and Bedfordshire, 
It is hoped new research will uncover clues about what happened to the Sistine Chapel of wartime airbase artwork in Britain. Thanks for that, Emma. Don't forget to visit historyextra.com for all the latest history news. Before our next interview, here's a reminder that tickets are now on sale for our 2014 History Weekend Festival. Taking place from the 16th to the 19th of October in the Wiltshire town of Malmesbury, the festival features talks from dozens of leading historians, authors and broadcasters. To find out more information and to purchase tickets, please visit the festival website historyweekend.com. Tickets are already selling fast, so if you are keen to attend, do make sure to buy yours soon so that you don't miss out. Slavery was an integral part of life in Roman society, and at the heart of their understanding of how the world should be organised. It could also, from our point of view, be casually shocking. To help modern readers understand its complexities, historian Jerry Toner has written a new book that draws on ancient sources to produce a how-to guide to managing slaves. Jerry spoke to our books editor, Matt Elton, about what the slaves' lives may have been like. Now, unfortunately, we had a slight technical issue with this recording, so you may hear a background hiss during the interview. I hope you will persevere with it, though, because Jerry and Matt's discussion is a particularly interesting one. Do we know, do we get a sense of how many people were in slavery at the time of this guide? All of these are just informed guesses, really, based on what is fairly, fairly thin evidence. Um, bear in mind, we don't even know how, what the population of the Roman Empire was, but a reasonable guess would be, say, 70 million people. And probably the empire as a whole, you're talking 10 to 15% of the population are in slavery. So about 10 million people. But that was very concentrated in different areas. So probably the highest concentration was in Rome itself. So a city of about a million where perhaps 30 to 40% are slaves. So if you went to Rome, you would be amazed at probably one in every three people you'd see would be a slave. Wow. Rome in Italy uh, itself is, is also has a higher level of slavery with perhaps 15 to 20% of the population being slaves. In the provinces, it's probably a good bit lower, okay. perhaps only 10 to 15%. So the empire as a whole, perhaps something like 15%. In terms of, I suppose, the first, the first stage of the book uh, talks about is acquiring slaves. Um, how would people go about doing this? Well, in Rome, the easiest thing was you either went down to the Roman Forum or you went to the, the site of Julia, which was the marketplace uh, close to where the, the Pantheon was in Rome. And there were slave dealers who had shops and they would have stands at the front of those shops and the slaves would stand on them uh, they would have a placard hung around their neck, which would give their origin. Um, they had to legally declare if there were any defects that they had, such as if they had tried to kill themselves or run away or be criminal uh, in, any, in, in their past. Um, if they were new slaves, if they were newly captured, for example, they had their feet chalked white so that you knew that they were, they were fresh. And in terms of you choosing a slave, would there be a range of different types of people, different types of nationalities available, and you just pick from them? Is that how it worked? Absolutely. It was, really was a, a, a very well-stocked marketplace with slaves from all across the uh, empire and beyond. 
Um, slaves come from a variety of sources that they either come from conquest, where the Romans have captured them in war, or they would be born as slaves, born to other slaves and then sold on by their masters uh, or through slave traders, or they could be brought in through uh, the slave trade from outside the empire, so that the, uh, they would be coming from barbarian, non-Roman regions. There are also technically illegal ways of, of, of becoming a slave that uh, a freeborn person could sell themselves or a child of theirs into slavery. Um, now, legally, that person remained uh, free, but in, in practice, it was possible to do that. And obviously, it's really a, uh, a desperate thing to do. Yeah. Uh, but if you were in great debt, for example, you might be prepared to sell one of your children to pay off the debt. Could you sell yourself into slavery? Is that something people do? Uh, yes, you could. I mean, not legally, but no. people do. Okay. Yeah. Um, and there's something that is touched on in the book, um, which is the idea of almost like a league table of different kind of races, if you like, different tribes of people. Um, were there certain sorts of people that were valued most highly or seen as being preferable in some way? They, they certainly had uh, enjoyed using Greeks, particularly in more educated uh, positions. So if you wanted to tutor your children, for example, you would probably have a, a Greek because the Romans rather looked up to the Greeks mm. culturally and so they would be keen to use their... Um, uh, a Greek slave, perhaps, to um, teach their children how to behave and, and properly and how to, how to uh, be a good uh, orator and things like that. Um, you can imagine that people, slaves that came from more rough parts of the empire, such as you know, Britain or perhaps Germany, uh, were considered to be less desirable to have around the house. I mean, they were, they were less well-mannered. And in, in terms of um, the kind of task that a slave would be uh, asked to perform, was this a huge range of different tasks, Robs? Absolutely. So, again, our image of slaves all being used in, in the cotton fields is, is very different in Rome, that you have a big divide between rural slaves and urban slaves. In the country, then, slaves are working in chain gangs, they are very much hard at work in the fields. In, in the urban environment, they are primarily used as retinues in the household where they can perform any number of functions. And the bigger the household and the more the number of slaves, then the more differentiated the slaves. You had slaves doing everything. So you, you would have personal slaves who would do, like be hairdressers for your wife. They had the unpleasant job of wiping your backside. And if you uh, went to the loo, uh, they would um, be doorkeepers, they would be name callers for when your guests arrive. In fact, the richer you were, almost the more ridiculous the kind of job you invented for your slave, uh, just to show off how, how rich you were. There's some debate uh, about whether um, people in Rome saw slaves as being in some way inherently different um, than other people in society. Do you think that they did see them in some way as being a separate type of person, or were they treated as, as people in the same way? There's quite a difference between the Greek view of, of slavery and the Roman view. Um, in the Greek view, slaves are inherently slavish, and they are very similar to barbarians, that barbarian is always synonymous with slave, whereas they view the Greeks as being naturally, inherently free. The Romans 
on the whole, do not share that view that they see slavery more as a, a social convention, if you like, that is just the result of a force. Now, in reality, you can imagine that is a, a good thing because it does mean that uh, particularly those Romans who have some kind of influence of Stoicism do see a slave as having a soul, as having some kind of value that is worth over and above their value as a slave, that they are, they are slaves only because they happen to have been captured in war or, or have been born to other slaves. Uh, the Greek view is that slaves, once a slave, always a slave. Um, that Greek view is very much what informed the, the British and the US model of slavery, that mm -hmm. it's this kind of racial view of black versus white, that blacks were seen as inherently slave, um, slavish, whereas the, the, the Romans do not have that view. And it's, in, in a way, it's a much more optimistic view that slavery then becomes a temporary situation that if you're a good slave and you work hard, you can be rewarded with your freedom and you can then become a Roman citizen. Mm. And your children then acquire the full rights of Roman citizenship. Uh, in very much the way modern American society is an immigrant society, it's a model that allows for very large-scale assimilations. Did this optimistic, in a sense, view change the way in which slaves were, were treated? It would be nice to see think that when you look at the, the writings of people like Seneca, who uh, Marcus Sidonius uses quite a lot, that it's a more, this more humane treatment of slaves, seeing them as human beings that should be treated with some respect. It would be nice to think that that does actually feed through into the actual treatment of slaves. Sadly, there's no evidence that that is in fact the case. Um, in, in many ways, the texts that Seneca writes are probably written because they are so radically new for many Roman writers that they don't uh, readers, sorry, they don't treat their, their slaves like that. That they, it's normal to treat your slaves quite brutally. Mm. Do we get any account, any sense of uh, masters becoming genuinely fond of slaves? Absolutely. So many many masters freak their slaves after long years of of loyal service. A uh, famous example, Cicero, for example, frees his, his um, slave Tyro, uh, who has worked as his kind of secretary for many years, and he then becomes a, a loyal freedman of his. And Cicero recounts how happy his wife was when he, uh, she finds out that he's going to free Tyro. That some slaves became very, have very close relationships with their owners. But again, we probably shouldn't see that as the norm. There's some, there's some discussion, some sense of masters being occasionally scared of their slaves because of the position they had in their household. Is it something that comes across, do you think, in this? Well, there certainly were examples of, of big slave rebellions, the most fam famous of which, of course, is Spartacus um, in 73 to 71 BC. But... Those kind of servile wars, as they were called, were, were rare. There were three, and, and Spartacus was the last of them. And they really date to a period up when there had been very large-scale capture of slaves as prisoners of war in the big uh, conquests of, of the Roman Republic. By the time we get to this guide, which is written in the Empire, 
you don't have that kind of large-scale assimilation of slaves, apart from occasionally, say, after Trajan's Trajan conquest in Dacia. So it's a fairly established, well-oiled institution with slavery by this time. And it's surprisingly how few rather cases we find of what we might call master murder. Now, that might be because the punishments for this were extreme. So if a master was murdered, the law was that every slave in the household was also then executed as a punishment. The theory being that one of them would either have known something, or they might have heard something, or they could have done something to help the master when he was being attacked. The most famous example of this is uh, Fidanius Secundus, who is um, killed by one of his slaves, either because he has gone back on a, a deal to free him, or because uh, there was some uh, love affair going on between them. Uh, it's unclear. Uh, but this slave kills, kills his master, and then all 400 of the slaves are executed. And it becomes, it goes right up to the Senate. There's a big debate in the Senate about whether these 400 should be executed. And some senators feel this is overly harsh because it means that so many, so many innocent women and children are going to be killed. Um, but most senators think that it's important that this traditional law is upheld so that other masters are able to sleep soundly in their bed. And interestingly, when they're taken to be executed, uh, many of the normal Romans, the plebeian Romans, line the streets and complain and try to stop it. Um, and the emperor, uh, Nero, in fact, has to line the streets with soldiers to prevent the crowd from uh, getting in the way. Now, that might show that by this time, of course, probably most normal Romans had slave blood in their family somewhere. It may be that actually they felt quite sympathetic to these, uh, these poor slaves, um, but it's impossible to know for sure. How, how did the relationship um, between the master and slave typically end? I think, again, there will have been a big divide between country slaves and uh, town slaves. So in the country, you were probably worked until you died, because why else, why would they set free? There's, there's no relationship between the master and the slave. There's no benefit to, to free you. If you're an urban slave, where you are possibly able to develop a kind of relationship with the master or one of his immediate family, then you could hope eventually to be set free. Uh, and this could be done in a variety of means. Uh, the most common one is probably through will, that someone would say, when I die, I give freedom to either all or some of my slaves. Or they could simply um, write them a letter. Uh, they might do something informal, like ask them to recline at dinner with them, to, have a, to join them on their couch, which would be a symbol that they were then uh, a social equal. Um, or they could go to an actual formal uh, process in, 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 in front of a magistrate where they would declare them to be free. It's very unclear, though, what kind of length of term you would have to serve as a, a slave in order to do that. Augustus condemned people uh, to a length of servitude of 30 years, which was regarded as a very severe punishment. Um, Cicero likens um, the dictatorship under Julius Caesar. Uh, he says the first six years of that was akin to a whole slave of servitude. 
which perhaps, given that he seems to be joking, uh, means that perhaps an average slave would serve a good bit more than that. So who knows, 15 to 20 years perhaps okay. would be a yeah. reasonable guess. So yeah. it's, a, it's a long time. Mm. And do we get a sense of what life was like um, after becoming a slave? Were people just then kind of ordinary Roman citizens? They were free to go about their lives as they would have done otherwise? Well, they don't simply get cut off. They then become a client of their former master who becomes their patron. So a new relationship is established. Uh, they're, not, they're not just free to go about uh, the, their business as if their master never existed. Mm. They're expected to come and support their master politically and socially. They're expected to perform a certain number of days' service every year, uh, which might be in whatever the master wants them to do. Or they might have to supply two members of their own family to come and do other services. So they are still very much bound up in a close relationship with their former master. Mm. And in return, the master might help them out in setting up a business, or they might become an agent for their master in trade. Remember, the trade was seen to be a bit, a bit rough. It wasn't something that a, a gentleman would want to get involved in. And so they would use um, freedmen as agents to carry out their business uh, for them. What would be the thing, if you could travel back in time to this period, what would you like to find out that we don't currently know? What questions would you like to ask of people involved in both sides of this relationship, I suppose? Gosh, uh, there's so many, there are so many areas that we don't have much knowledge about slavery. Uh, the kind of numbers that they had, uh, whether they actually bred from them. It, it, whilst it's clear that slaves did breed and they were allowed to have informal marriages, they, had, they weren't legally married, but they were allowed these informal relationships. It's unclear whether the Romans actually bred from them in the sense that they used to pick healthy specimens and pair them off, uh, or whether they actually just allowed them to form these relationships fairly casually uh, amongst themselves. Uh, so that kind of area would be fascinating to, to learn about. Yeah, um, and if, if readers were to go away from this book um, with different impression of the period, or there was some misapprehension that you'd like to change, what would that be, I suppose? Well, I think people will go away perhaps thinking, one, how all-pervasive slavery was in, in the Roman world, and how casually shocking it could be. We often tend to think of the Romans as being just like us, wearing togas. But I think if we went back to the ancient world, we would be shocked at the level of daily brutality that could exist. Um, above all, I think, if you went to a law court, you would be absolutely horrified at the treatment of slaves there, that it was a condition of Roman law that any slave who gave evidence in a law court had to do so under torture. They did not believe that a slave could be trusted to tell the truth unless he was being tortured. And this was just a common sight in, in a law court, for slaves to be uh, flogged with whips, which would have lead, lead tips on the end of them, uh, to having what were known as uh, claws, uh, which were razor-sharp knives, dragged over the sides as they were being tortured on the rack. This kind of astonishing, astonishing level of brutality was a normal part of Roman law, which we would imagine as one of, one of the most civilised... Um, uh, achievements of the, of the Romans. It's uh, that kind of contrast between brutality and civilization that I think we would find very shocking. 
That was Tim Butcher. The Trigger, Hunting the Assassin Who Brought the World to War, is out now, published by Chateau and Windus in the UK and Grove Press in the US. And for more on the First World War, do be sure to keep up with BBC History magazine, where we'll be discussing the conflict on regular occasions over the next few months. Well, that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we'll do our best to read out some of your messages in future episodes. One listener who contacted us recently was Dave from New York City. Dave writes, Just a quick note to say I really enjoy when you post live lectures for podcasts. Each one you've put up so far has been great. I look forward to more in future. Thank you, Dave, and I'm sure we will be broadcasting some lectures over the next few months. And as well as email, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at History Extra or find us on Facebook where we're also History Extra. And do make sure to visit our website, historyextra.com, for history news, quizzes, galleries, articles and episodes of this podcast dating back to 2007. Next week, we'll be paying a visit to a key battle site from the Wars of the Roses, while James Holland will be offering his thoughts on D-Day. This History Extra podcast was recorded on location in Cambridge and in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. 